through these kind of annual lecture series, we're trying to gather information on a subject or a question and work together with um, the audience of Brisbane to think through important questions in contemporary art. So last year, the second question was the artist as, imagining all the different hats um, an artist wears and what kind of professions artists might come from or pull from in their professional practice. And we've just started ed um, editing with Tara McDowell the publication for that series. So in 2017, this year, yeah. 17, <laughs> our colleague Madeline King has conceived of and will be organizing the lecture series on color. I'll let her unpick why we all agree this is such a pressing topic today in contemporary art, while it might seem outmoded. So, yeah, just to say that um, Imagine a Recorded Publication will be launching at the Melbourne Art Book Fair next week, but we'll also do a launch here in Brisbane in May. So without further ado, Madeline King. Thank you, Aileen Yuan, and thank you everyone for coming. Um, I'm really delighted to introduce this debate between our two art historians, Professors Susan Best and Andrew McNamara. They've both um, published extensively on aesthetics in both the modern and contemporary context. Susan Best is the Deputy Director of Research at the Queensland College of Art, um, and she's the author of Visualizing, Feeling, Affect, and Feminine Avant-Garde and Reparative Aesthetics, launched here just recently, Witnessing in Contemporary Art Photography. Andrew McNamara is an art historian and professor of visual arts at QUT, and his publications include Sweat, the Subtropical Imaginary, An Apprehensive Aesthetic, and Modern Times, The Untold Story of Modernism in Australia. So our topic for the debate tonight is that contemporary art has nothing to fear in colour. Before we hear from the affirmative and the negative, I'd like to introduce the topic of this lecture series overall in, in colour. Throughout the year, we're going to be hearing from a number of fascinating speakers to understand how colour relates not just to contemporary art, but also to things like race and politics, the environment, technology, gender and sexuality. The next in the series will be delivered by um, Diana Young, who is the head of the UQ Anthropology M Museum, and she's just about to release a book on this subject called Rematerializing Colour. And we're going to be hearing from some interstate and international guests later on in the year, so stay tuned for that. So, the premise here is that contemporary art has a colour problem. Though artists continue to work in full colour, nobody seems to be talking about it. Where once a mastery of colour names, hues, tints and shades was a prerequisite for the art critic, these days reviews of colourful contemporary art go to great lengths to avoid the topic. Is contemporary art colourblind or even chromophobic? One example here, some very visibly colourful work by Liam Gillick, which he's known for in this review, I think it was in Moose magazine. The word colour is not actually mentioned, instead they use terms like visually arresting. 
This topic of colour dovetails with another one of my own personal research interests, which is fashion. Colour like fashion represents artifice, artifice, sorry, change and instability, and perhaps most damning of all, femininity. Colour like fashion is therefore to be considered deeply untrustworthy and certainly at odds with the high-minded aspirations of art and philosophy. Indeed, fashion here in Queensland, a topic I've written a bit about, has been historically and perhaps still to this day derided as colourful. Our taste for bright and pastel colours betraying our lack of sophistication compared to our southern counterparts. For modernist architects such as Adolf Loos, who's the author of that influential and brilliantly titled essay, Ornament and Crime, and Le Corbusier, colour represents the most deplorable quality of aesthetics, adornment, decoration, and ornament, or as we know it, kitsch. So Le Corbusier wrote in 1927 in Towards a New Architecture, decoration is of a sensorial and elementary order as is color and is suited to simple races, peasants and savages. Harmony and proportion incite the intellectual faculties and arrest the man of culture. The peasant loves ornament and decorates his walls. Mark Wigley, author of White Walls, Design Addresses, The Fashioning of Modern Architecture, has pointed out that despite the popular association we continue to have with Le Corbusier and the archetypal white modernist building, he in fact only ever made one white building. That our cultural memory has in effect been whitewashed is a symptom of both the modern and contemporary view on colour and something that David Batchelor points out in one of the few texts on this subject, Chromophobia. He says in relation to this particular myth of Le Corbusier and white buildings, we are not dealing with something as simple as white things and white surfaces, with white as an empirically verifiable fact or as a colour. Rather, we are in the realm of whiteness. White as myth, as an aesthetic fantasy, a fantasy so strong that it summons up negative hallucinations, so intense that it produces a blindness to colour, even when colour is literally in front of your face. Tonight's topic is colour in contemporary art, but I'll stay with architecture for just a moment because I believe that architecture of the last century, along with interior decoration, have helped to colonise our imaginations of what is ideal, right and proper in aesthetics and what is wrong. And the effect of this continues to play out in art of this century. In a thesis proposed by Kenji Kajia, it was in part the interior decor of a stylish Manhattan apartment belonging to Clement Greenberg, that influential mid 20th century art critic and arbiter of good taste that led to the decline of color in contemporary art. I'll just let you soak that up. So, in this 1964 edition of Vogue magazine, 
The critic's home was considered the height of fashionability, with his personal art collection so brilliantly tying together his striking and very modern lemon lounge suite. The living room pictured in this spread features some color field paintings. Oops, let me go back. Um, or as Greenberg would know it, post-painterly abstraction by Americans Morris Louis, uh, which is above the sofa there, and Kenneth Nolan, the Chevron, and Austrian Wolfgang Holleger. In fact, Morris Louis was known to have sold uh, his paintings to collectors from this very apartment. Of course, Greenberg denied that there was any decorating strategy at play with the placement of these artworks in his home. So he shared with Vogue readers, big abstract paintings turn out to be astonishingly easy to live with. Abstract painting, especially of the post-war American variety, tends to hold the wall more the way that Far Eastern painting does. He continued, another fact of my experience that may seem surprising is how little the matching of or consistency of color matters. A picture that works seems to fit in anywhere, regardless of the color in the rooms or of the pictures near it, and regardless too of styles or periods. I have yet to be shown that consistency in these respects is an aesthetic virtue. What was considered controversial in the 1940s and 50s and fashionable in the 1960s had become mainstream by the early 1970s. Home decorating magazines had jumped on the color field painting trend. And it was so easy to replicate at home. Do-it-yourself features, such as this one in House Beautiful, 1971, suggested using brightly colored and inexpensive scotch tape to create a color field wallpaper to brighten up drab white walls. Greenberg's post-painterly abstraction had become kitsch. It seems that color in art has never quite recovered from this perception. We're gathered this evening in an exhibition where color is potent. And if you were lucky enough to see Willem de Roy talk about this exhibition, you'll understand why. Hopefully you've seen, or you'll later see tonight in Gallery 4 just there, uh, Willem de Roy and his collaborator, Euroan de Rake's celebrated work, Orange. It's a series of 81 slides depicting nothing but a single color. And it demonstrates just how intricately coded and rich with meaning color can be. Using a standard film stock um, that's been scientifically manipulated to reduce orange so that white skin tone appears more pink. Um, they capture a series of photographs in orange uh, that represent a really broad set of moments, ideas, and feelings. This includes in the most historical instance, the independent Dutch state followed by the rule of the monarchy known as the House of Orange, through to, in the most recent instance, those oppressively orange uniforms of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. In our current global political moment, when I look at this work, and this may be the same for many others, I can't help but think about that orange man currently occupying the White House. This series does not pose the question as are artists still using colors in contemporary art? Of course they are. 
This series is about the strange turn of events that has meant that colour is everywhere in contemporary art, but nobody seems to talk about it. Let's take, for example, how this work, Orange, was described in a New York Times review. Um, this one's from 2006, and it opens with, late conceptualism is the new formalism. At least that's what it looks like at the tightly wound New York debut of the Dutch artists Jeroen de Rijk and Willem de Roy. Infused with a post-Kunzian window dressing elegance, they go on to dryly describe the works and the didactics that accompany them. So among the works they describe is orange, and they say this is a slideshow of monochromatic gels that cycle through the orange-yellow segment of the spectrum. And the review concludes as follows. Before you read the labels, the piece creates a brisk perceptual play among art, artifice, and reality. After you read them, it starts feeling like a revolutionary cell meeting in the cosmetic section of Barney's. Artifice, cosmetics, illusion, deception, color. Of course, David Batchelor is quick to point out that the Latin root of the word color is connected to the verbs to hide or conceal. And I quote in Middle English, to color is to embellish or adorn, to disguise, to render specious or plausible, to misrepresent. Color is dangerous. So tonight, our debate topic, that contemporary art has nothing to fear in color. We'll hear from the affirmative, and then the case from the negative, that's 15 minutes each, and then rebuttal and closing statements from each, that's seven minutes each. We then allow 10 minutes for something we're calling audience rebuttal. <laughs> that's where you all have the opportunity to pull apart their arguments. During this time, I will be adjudicating, and we will award tonight's winner this bottle of sparkling. <laughs> There's a lot at stake tonight. <laughs> so please welcome from the affirmative, Susan Best. So it's unusual, actually, for Andrew and I to disagree. I think we've known one another for almost 30 years, but obviously on this issue of colour, we totally disagree. <laughs> so my case that I'm going to put forward is that colour should not be feared in contemporary art. Um, I'm going to start with a lovely quote from Roland Barthes that obviously gets you in the mood of how wonderful colour is. He says, colour is a kind of bliss, like a closing eyelid, a tiny fainting spell. So this kind of very sensual description of colour is clearly what might be behind some of the fear about colour in contemporary art. As some of you may know, obviously, I work on the art of the 1960s and 70s as well as contemporary art. And clearly, when it comes to colour, this is where some of that fear obviously appears to be most strongly manifested. A librarian, when I was working at UNSW, once said to me as I was taking out semiotics of the kitchen, oh no, you're showing the students those damn black and white things again. 
So clearly this period of art, the 60s and 70s, minimalism, conceptualism, set up that idea of a certain kind of uh, rigor that embraced impersonality, embraced a kind of deadpan sensibility, rejected the sensuous qualities of art. And as many commentators, I'm sure you're aware, have argued, this period or these two moments, if you like, minimal and conceptual art, are often seen as important for the second half of the 20th century as Cubism was in the first. So the fact that this kind of art was deliberately desensualizing, stripping back to you know, ideas, actions, clearly not interested in the material sort of sides of art to a large degree, it was obviously with a work um, here on the right, you've got Robert Morris, I'm sure you uh, may well remember that this colour that he painted everything was pilgrim grey, so deliberately kind of almost blending into the background sort of colour. So you could barely distinguish the artwork from the place in which it was actually placed. So it's this kind of embeddedness of the object into the space that someone like Morris was um, supporting. So clearly there's no colour there. We tend to read this art as obviously rigorous and serious. Obviously this is where you end up with this fear about colour. It's the opposite somehow or other. You, I mean, this is the very famous installation shot of Mel, um, Mel Bochner's exhibition, working drawings and other things on paper not necessarily meant to be viewed as art. We have that terribly uncomfortable viewing position, the poor people having to stand up and flick through the actual um, photocopies. So an incredibly reduced kind of um, visuality here. Not only is it black and white, no colour, but you've got to stand up and then the actual image quality reduced even further so by photostat. So clearly that period set up this idea of colour being something that one should reject if you wanted to be seen as a kind of a serious artist. Another work, Mel Bochner, Axiom of Indifference, this is obviously that particular kind of conceptual art that's making itself doubly irritating by, in a way, being tautological. It's saying, you know, you've got some are out, referring to these coins, some are in, so you've got really not... You're not really being given anything in addition to the concept of the actual thing. It's kind of like the, the title is in a... Or the, text is just duplicating what you've already got there. It's not adding very much. Um, similarly, obviously, very important work by people like Hans Harker, very socially significant, um, this complicated diagram about buying and selling within the same group in order to um, do what was called rent gouging. But note how it's presented. It's hard to muster much interest, even though you know it's a worthy, you know, worthy thing that's being tracked here. Black and white, how do you get interested in this thing? You're thinking, this is like a social studies project. How, why can't this have colour? Surely if it had colour, I might be a bit more um, interested. Obviously, it's a somewhat perverse case I'm running here where I'm going through the area that I work on, but I'm nonetheless saying that colour's good. 
Uh, Martha Rossler, um, Bowery into inadequate descriptive systems. You have, you know, this black and white photographs again, deadpan, heavy on the text. We've again getting this sort of, here we're moving to almost the extreme end of conceptual art where you're not even getting to see what it's supposed to be about. So the Bowery was an area where a lot of homeless people lived and obviously um, you're not even getting to see them. So there's not what Alan Sakula would call the find a bum school of documentary. No bums, just text and black and white photographs. The apotheosis, obviously, of the deadpan, Joseph Kasuth, One and Three Chairs, 1965, are we learning anything about chairs looking at this? We have a chair, we have a photograph, black and white photograph, and we have a definition, black and white. Clearly, we've got this incredibly denuded and sensually deprived version of a chair. But we're not getting any more... It's totally tautological, not getting anything. Um, even when feminist artists like Susan Hiller enter the fray, still black and white... Um, this is her pregnancy, um, obviously interesting topic, you know, she's presenting it via these monochrome photographs, monochrome photographs, but again, no colour, no sensuality, again, this deadpan aesthetic. Uh, or, you know, Ed Ruscha, you know, every single building on Sunset Strip, again, we've got that tautological thing, the title tells you everything, do you really need to see it? However, this same idea of um, putting together a kind of uh, a map, if you like, or examining in a systemic kind of way a certain concept with colour when we get to contemporary art, Sophie Cull could easily be seen as an important proponent of that conceptualist kind of vocabulary, but she has colour. So we're interested in the fact that she was dropped via email. So the, you know, the letter she received supposedly, we don't know if this is true of Sophie Carl Sophie or not, but she supposedly gets this email saying, you know, goodbye, and the last line is take care of yourself, which is actually the title of the work. And then she asks um, 107 women, including two made from wood, as she says here, and one with feathers, chosen for their professional skills to interpret that letter. So we, I think, become interested as we have this incredibly um, colourful engagement. So we're not losing any of the rigour of contemporary art. We have a concept, if you like. We have that idea of she's been dumped via uh, email. And now we've got this incredibly rich and sensual account. Oh, and different, obviously, we have the... This is the, if you can see this online, if you're interested, this is Brenda the parrot who responds to the letter by bouncing up and down and eating the letter. So obviously we're, we're interested in that idea of rep seriality and repetition. It becomes a rich thing when you have all these different perspectives and all this colourfulness. So colour comes in, there's no loss of rigour. Hence, there's obviously no need to be afraid of colour given that you can maintain this conceptual integrity, have this complexity and rigour and have the colour. It's so to reiterate, no need to be frightened or fearful about the introduction of colour. Similarly, you could, this is another um, one of the people who responded to um, that particular email. 
So that's the sort of conceptualist version of adding colour. Let me go through the minimalist version. So you'd all be familiar with Solar Wits, sort of serial projects. Again, it's, it's deadpan. It's white in this instance, not Pilgrim Grey. But it's clearly not um, wanting to embrace the sensual. It's staying with that you know, tough, right-angled, monochromatic language. It's deliberately kind of pushing you out. It's making you, I mean, it was, remember, called rejective art. So it's kind of pushing you away as if you might in some way be, um, well, what would happen if you were more interested in it? Um, similarly, something like Robert Morris's untitled L-beams. Um, in this image, it looks somewhat white, but I think that from memory, that's also a kind of a painted pilgrim grey. So you're supposed to be sufficiently engaged by these boring monochrome-type things, enough to walk around them and explore them and work out that these are the same L shape. So there's three in different positions. But as you can see, they kind of blend in with the wall. There's no um, appeal to the body. There's no sensuality. There's no colour. So obviously rigorous, we see that it's rigorous, we see that it's getting us to think deeply about perception, to remember that these forms are all the same forms, but it's, it's, it's kind of not making us engage at a deep sensory and sensual level. It's not giving us the kind of bliss that Bart is suggesting is the capacity of colour. So again, another kind of Robert Morris drab deadpan um, it's the sort of thing you could well imagine yourself just backing into in the gallery, barely aware that it's a work of art, tripping over, you know, um, accidents no doubt happened with this kind of work when it was um, displayed. Or again, a kind of a Carl Andre, what can I say? Bland, deadpan bricks. What has the man done? Okay, he's assembled them into a shape. Um, <laughs> Good. Are we feeling stimulated? Is our imagination firing? No. It's just this idea, yes, we get it, equivalent eight. Yes, there's a bunch of bricks. Um, yes, you could put them in another way, but um, not especially engaging. Again, one of those other dangerous works you could imagine falling into, um, and this is obviously when you have colour, that danger of falling over the work is just <laughs> not likely. Uh, and of course, this one I started with where he's you know, fully integrated the work into the space, so it's barely, you're barely able to see that that triangle at the back is actually part of his installation. However, given that vocabulary, what happens if you add Anne Truitt into the argument? Colour suddenly appears. So Anne Truitt, obviously I'm now playing the gender card, which I'd promised Andrew I wouldn't. And you may notice, of course, that I've added two women to change the way we're thinking about these two um, drab movements. Um, Anne Truitt, uh, James Mayer, he deliberately put her back into the art, into the discussion of minimalism. She wasn't included. Generally speaking, Anne Truitt is not seen as part of the minimalist movement. He made a very good argue for, argument for why she should be included. And what it suddenly brings to the argument is colour. 
So here we still have that clarity of form, we have that rigour and um, incredibly intelligent play between the object and the space that it's in, but we've got colour. So in terms of this problem about fearing um, colour, we can see that you can, in both minimalism and conceptualism, hang on to the rigour, the concepts, the integrity of the actual movement, but have colour and sensuality. Thank you. Okay. When we um, were first asked to do this, we can't remember actually when we were first asked and we were trying to figure out the other day, but I remember Sue very democratically said this is going to be the positive and the negative or the affirmative and the negative and she said, I'll take the affirmative. And now I realise she's quite com confused by the whole event because she just produced the negative as well. So you're going to have a double negative, I guess, today. I'm going to say that you should be worried about colour because colour makes artists delusional. <laughs> and I have... And you, it'll, it, this will give the background to everything that you saw, you know, leading up to the period that um, Sue was talking about, why artists no longer did colour. Now, I'll do two examples. One obscure moment from Australian art history. This is uh, led by a guy called Roy de Maist. It's a picture of him. It's almost ten years after the event. And he did an exhibition with a guy called Roland Wakelin in Sydney, right after the end of World War I. And it was an exhibition. These paintings are all very small. This is one of the more abstracted ones. It's, you can see it's naturalistic flower beds and a path going through a garden. And works like this. Uh, really, the harbourside scenes around the Sydney Harbour. Again, these are all small. And what they wanted to do was to perform these works by having them on a stage and having uh, musicians play the music that be accompanied by these sound, um, uh, the sound to accompany these artworks. So you can see most of them here are called symphony, the American movement playing on the term symphony, but works would be called symphony in yellow, green, minor, some symphony in blue, green, major key, so you get the reference to um, the music connotation. And this was the period when people were very interested in synesthesia and these sort of whole plays between different disciplines. Now, if people tell you about interdisciplinary activity, that it's all a new thing, you have that awkward, clumsy word, contemporaneity, and then you say interdisciplinarity, well, you're wrong. It all happened about 100 years earlier. And this is a good example of it. So de Maes not only had musicians playing to his paintings, and they would play the paintings, so more or less, he would also was um, exhibiting these colour charts. And these colour charts, he was interested in um, uh, patenting for you know, sort of designers, etc. And in the middle, he put these sort of vaguely theosophical uh, mumbo-jumbo terms, really. But they're sort of really to talk about this exploration where you get colour sensitivity, it moves you away from the terrestrial. So theosophy comes into that and you go to a higher plane with pure colour. So the big key thing for artists is to try and figure out how you would plot the visual arts to the musical. And of course, demaced, it would be yellow, would be like they worked out on the keyboard what was middle C, it would be yellow. Well, 
Margaret Preston only a few years later said it would be ruby red, and there's the problem. Everyone had a different starting point or the analogy. So he did actually um, um, patent these, and they were sold at David uh, Grace Brothers, sorry, in Sydney, and they were available right up to the 60s, these colour charts. So you could be designing rooms. This is the right view. Architects in the room, you could know how to match the parts of the furniture with the wall colour spaces and all that. So half your job is done for you, and they're all worked out. They're all available again now, so Ashley, you can get out and buy one soon. And this idea that it was all kitsch and that it was really bad that art had permeated the world, actually the earliest ideas of these early avant-gardes was that's exactly what they were meant to do. The whole idea was to have these colour experiments and they would be part of life. And so this theosophy on the one hand and this sort of idea of applied design is all this aspect of trying to get these interdisciplinary connections going. You move away from the experimental and you become part of life and you transform it. Um, there was 10 years later, there was um, where this experiment comes from originally was shell shock. And de Maist was working during World War I to do colour rooms so that people could recover from shell shock. Now, artists should not be allowed to do much with colour because they created a lot of danger. One guy woke up, he was an Irish Republican, they put him in an orange room. <laughs> now, Madeline's already told you the dangers are orange. Well, he woke up in the morning, he was screaming, he was scratching the walls. And he not only had shell shock, but now he had a psychotic delusional episode as well to match. So. <laughs> but one of the more successful colour arrangements was this one. And this is what you call a, a bachelor pack for the men of 1929. And you use this sort of yellow, like grey, blue for the wall to have this sense of serenity. One of the most underrated works of... Um, Australian art is this one, done by Professor Sadler, the Japanese room. You can see it's just, where's the, they were meant to be coloured rooms. These rooms are all meant to show how modern design could be produced in Australia and could be, uh, the, these sort of colour experiments met with them. You had this room where it's all white, which actually is colour, but there's no colour in the room. And Sadler had the idea that where the colour would come into this room is that everyone who came to visit the room would bring the colour in with their own clothes. Okay, so the delusion was this system that you'd find something that would reference everything. And the really best example of this is the famous Russian composer Skriabin. He was also interested in this sound colour affinity. And um, he started doing very similar things. map it all musically and then he'd do these sort of um, do colours connected to notes more or less systematically and then he had the grand idea that when this would all come together he would um, devise this mysterium that this is a sketch of it, it unfortunately he died before this actually was going to happen and it was an architectural design for this event Everyone would go to the Himalayas to see it. It would have music, it would have colour, it would have smell, sound, all the, all the senses together would be... And this would happen for a week. And Sue mentioned the term bliss, Roland Barthes. Well, Scriabin, after this event of a week, we'd reach this state of bliss where humankind would disappear and we'd have a new form of higher consciousness would avail. Unfortunately, Scriabin died 
the year before. <laughs> and no one got to go to the Himalayas to see this thing. So colour, it's dangerous in the wrong hands, obviously. <laughs> colour, though, is also why it's best to be left alone is it also confounds everybody. A bit of t little bit of stuff. Colour is virtually just refract it's white and colour is just a refracting of light. We all know that Newton did all that. Remember Pink Floyd ripped him off and showed how the colour spectrum <laughs> is an illusion based by the refraction of white light. So that guy who did the colour in the Japanese room, when he did the white light, he was such a conceptual guy, he was way ahead of just all of the Sue's conceptual guys by about <laughs> a, half a century. Okay, two things. Light travels in waves. Okay, some of them are like 10 kilometres long like colour of anything, colour is a complete illusion because if you see a tomato, it is that tomato absorbs every colour, yellow, green, purple, etc. The only thing that's not in a tomato is red and because it doesn't absorb that we see it. So every time we see a colour it's just a complete illusion, it's got nothing to do with the object at all. So it's just a complete con. <laughs> Two things to know about that. Humans see in wavelengths between 00038. Now, maybe some of you might not be good at maths, but what you realise is really small. Right? <laughs> 00075. That's all we can see. There are lots of, lots of animals that see less, and, but there's a lot more that see more than us. Okay? We can't see ultraviolet and we can't see infrared. Okay? Now, dogs see less colour. And, you know, we're all in the art world, we're such free thinkers. That's why we all think the same thing. We know that aesthetics is Eurocentric. We know that most of the things we do are anthropocentric. And think about... And we don't like being anthropocentric, so why do we only have shows that suit us? That is colour. Dogs... You never see dogs at the IMA. And it's because... <laughs> Recent shows would be, yeah, more likely. But really, you'd have other shows. Fish, birds, amphibians wouldn't like them because they see more colour than us. So we're really anthropocentric the way we think about colour. We are just in a very, very small spate of colour. If we turned the lights off here, we wouldn't see anything. There'd be no colour. <laughs> There'd be no light. I was thinking of asking Madeline to do that for the show. But what you, if you did have heat-sensitive or heat-sensitive equipment, you could see colour. You could see the radiation of all of us here with our heat, you know, giving off heat, and that's the only thing you'd be able to see. And the interesting thing about that is you'd see much more heat radiating from Sue as I've now just demolished her debate. <laughs> Okay, it's time for rebuttal. <laughs> I'd be angry. Susan Bess, please present your rebuttal. <laughs> 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 
we've got how long to rebut one another? Seven minutes. Okay. So, Andrew presented two slightly wacky modernists. <laughs> two... <laughs> but two wacky modernists doesn't make colour dangerous? I mean, Roy de Maestra, okay, he picked the wrong colour for the poor person coming back from the war. But imagine if they'd picked the right colour. Like, what would have been the right colour? Perhaps green or something restful like pale violet or pink or something. Imagine the therapeutic effects of colour. You know, Kandinsky, obviously, I guess in your mind, another wacko, um, <laughs> did have various ideas about how colours sounded, how they could have, you know, various spiritual uh, and uplifting aspects. Clearly, you've chosen to highlight two wacky people. Um, so, but uh, in the case of Scriabin, that's a nice idea that people could all go to the Himalayas and find bliss. The fact that he died is unfortunate, but I don't think that you can attribute that necessarily to colour. I mean, he, all those people that thought sound and colour were in some way correlated may be deluded, but they're not dangerous. And remember when you're thinking about this, because I want the bottle of um, bubbly, not him, um, that it's whether colour is dangerous or not. And clearly a couple of nutters who, who are fantasising about going to the Himalayas um, is not dangerous in and of itself. Um, if we didn't have dangerous um, parts of art practice, it would be extremely uh, boring. Um, so Andrew said dangerous in the wrong hands as a kind of a way of, I guess, qualifying the way in which it's dangerous. So dangerous in what? Artists' hands? Dangerous in... Uh, dangerous to whom, I guess, we should also be asking. So is colour... I mean, we're in a very monochromatic environment at the moment. I um, mean, do we feel safer? Do we feel safer when we're amongst beige things? I guess that would be something that is another way of approaching this topic. Uh, is lack of colour where you feel safer? Um, the fact that people might have elaborate fantasies about colour doesn't necessarily mean it's a dangerous thing. Um, so what other aspects of his argument could we revisit? I guess the... Modernists, obviously there was a somewhat strange um, flip in that the modernists that he was looking at were, generally speaking, more colourful, and obviously the serious minimalist conceptualists I was looking at um, are deliberately excluding colour as an aspect. Uh, does that mean one... His, uh, so does that mean my ones are less dangerous, given that they were excluding colour, and the ones that he was looking at are more dangerous? Because clearly that's the thing, fear. Why would we fear colour particularly? Is there a need to fear it just because it's seductive, because it's engaging, because it's possibly going to lead you to want to take an expedition to the Himalayas. Is that a bad thing? And on that basis, I think I'll conclude. <laughs>
Okay. So, um, Sue talked about my artist, so I'm going to talk about her period. I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you an anecdote as part of my riposte because um, Sue did a very eloquent presentation about a whole group of artists that were anti-art. And I'll tell you, this story is about um, someone's realisation about conceptual art and the sort of problems of where that went to. And um, I was reminded by that when I was reading something recently about um, Mike Stevenson, he's talking about a work of his, and he said, all the research I've done is not actually in the work itself. You've got to read the catalogue. And I always sort of thought, that's a, that's a bad argument for an artwork or for an artist and for someone to place on it that actually the work can't communicate itself. You've got to read something else about it. So when I was, um, when Sue and I were much younger, we, um, I don't know if you were there that night, we were at Artspace and there was a debate on, and the respondent was Ian Byrne, who was, um, uh, who was very much part of conceptual art. He was the Australian guy who was part of the conceptual art movement. And a young person, sort of, sort of colleague of ours, um, Rex Butler, had done a show called Banal Art. And his argument was that um, no, all works now are just all sort of conceptual, mindlessly conceptual. Any argument just attaches to them. They're just bits of pieces there for rhetoric. So what was Byrne's response, this arch-conceptualist? He got up and did uh, a formal reading of a work by A.D.S. Donaldson. And at this stage, he was being archly minimal conceptual artist. He, there was a piece that was white, had pine board in the middle, and then white again. And the white was very buffed and shiny. And he started to do a formal analysis of the work and talked about how, okay, it seems very minimal, it's not much happening there, but if you had two bits of pine and one white shine in the middle, it would be a completely different work and did an analysis of all this sort of thing. So he completely repudiated the whole idea that these works are devoid of analysis or void of meaning and so forth. So his point then in the end was that the key thing, and he went to look back at a lot of the conceptual work and its legacy, and he made this decision that the whole point about conceptual art wasn't the conceptual bit, the idea bit, etc., but the whole idea that visual acuity is the big thing. And I think that's a very important sort of point because a lot of, say, work like archaeological art, there is a bit of a hint here and a bit a hint over there, and you've got to work out the bit in between and how that works together. So I think there was always a problem that had to be realised for that generation, that they were colourless, but also sort of lacked this sort of visual acuity of how things would work, or at least the legacy of that is like, how do these things work? And what artists do, by visual acuity, he meant that they pushed the limits of looking at something so that you had to look at it again and try and figure out what was going on, but in a way that was a certain intelligence there about why things were connecting and how they were. And the reason why that was important was because, of course, artists had to stop doing colour because they were just so bad at it. And my point wasn't that... What was, what was the, thing, the word you used? I wasn't trying to say that it was bad. It's just that it, they're delusional when they do it or if they have grand schemes for doing it. But the po point this showed me too is that when you're overly conceptual, the same problem happens too. You can be just as equally delusional. So there's a problem there both ways. So I'll um, leave that with bliss and delusion as my final comment.
Thank you. Thank you, Susan and Andrew, for that rebuttal. I'm not sure if the audience here is entirely satisfied with that, the quality of the rebuttal. I'm not sure if you pulled apart every aspect of the argument. I, I'm sure there's a lot more to cover. So if uh, anyone would like to um, raise some further points, please put up your hand. Uh, we are recording tonight, so if you wouldn't mind waiting for the microphone, Sanchintia will bring it to you. Do we have any... Uh, any further rebuttal from the floor? Right over this side. That two. They're they're eager. <laughs> they're keen. Um, the perception of colour between the sexes is markedly different. Not just an application of how things have been made for century, more embellished in colour one way or the other, but we're starting to understand biologically and by anatomy that women can potentially see four cones of colour uh, beyond the red, green, uh, red, yellow and blue and so forth. Uh, how does, I guess, does biology have a part in, how can you criticise a colour if you can't see it kind of thing and does that um, have a role in it? Okay, interesting. Now, I'll just remind everyone in the format, it is a rebuttal. So that's, that's your point of view, there, there's no questions here. If, would, is there any particular points you'd like to make in response to that? Otherwise, we'll, we'll have some further rebuttal. Would you like to clarify your position? I'm not an expert, but I know there's a, a case of 1% of women who see more. But most animals actually, they don't see, they don't have four cones. It's just there's a specific case where they can see more colour, but they still can't see more than a turtle. <laughs> case closed. Okay, thank you. Another rebuttal from the audience. Uh, hello, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you talked about contemporary art and mentioned the 1960s, so I'll, I'll take it back even further. Um, I, I, I want to mention uh, someone that would probably be a contemporary artist in this time, a polymath in his own, uh, and who has done more for uh, what we consider uh, our perception of colour than most others, and that's uh, uh, Johann Goethe, or Goethe, uh, if you prefer, um, who uh, uh, more more famous for Faust, um, but uh, was so interested in colour that he uh, decided to paint every... Uh, a room in his house in a different one according to mood. Now this seems like uh, something that is very uh, reminiscent of a lot of the conceptual uh, movement uh, and uh, I'm wondering like how does uh, someone of that era uh, have an influence on, on where we are today? Because uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he revered it in, in a sense uh, that I don't think I've got a, a feeling for in what you both said. Thank you. Any comments? I think, Patrick, that proves my point that artists are delusional when they get too focused on colour. Yeah. <laughs> Would you have a room? Like, what if you're not in that mood that day? I think you move to a different room. 
might put you in a bad mood. That's very true. Another question or, sorry, rebuttal from the floor. Um, I think colour should be, is um, like, uh, what's the word? Pro-trend in postmodern art, um, especially these days. Because we'd be inviting like another like Holocaustal war if there was no colour in art. Um, tribal art, or like something of that, to that extent. Tribal art um, is like, uh, what's the word? Visually and emotionally stimulating in a way that it's like healing to um, post-colonial kind of like messes that we've made. And like it doesn't seem logical that colour wouldn't be a tr like tr trendy thing in art these, t um, these days. I don't know, I just thought that it would be not logical that um, a lack of colour in art um, in, trend, in the trend scene these days would be logical. Okay. That, I think it's your turn, Sue. <laughs> this could be a, to reinforce your case, yeah. Um, interestingly, that whole thing about the rejection of beauty is very similar to your point, that um, obviously can minimal conceptual art, particularly conceptual art, is seen as rejecting beauty. And artists like Anna Mendieta pointed out very early on um, against people like Sol LeWitt, who said art should not be like gaudy baubles, she said, you know, without beauty, how do you have some kind of healing? So she's one of those artists in that, on the tail end of conceptualism, but nonetheless, she's seeing beauty as having very important political role to play. So beauty, colour, all those sensual, feminised um, qualities of art of course are going to be, sorry, I'm playing the gender card again, of course are going to be denigrated, but of course they're all very important if you actually want people to be interested in art. So, yeah, I totally agree. Do we have time for another one? Oh, oh two more. <laughs> um, Andrew mentioned that there wasn't enough exhibits for animals at the moment. Uh, but currently at the um, Jan Murphy Gallery, there's an exhibit for uh, about dogs, and their opening had dogs and their owners there at the same time that Heiser had cats, and uh, Philip Bacon had something about animals as well. So um, I feel like that's a rebuttal to uh, your argument. <laughs> but what did, did the dogs enjoy it? That's the question. Okay. See, that's the, you're, you're right that, well, you're right and wrong. That's part of the anthropocentric delusion that we think that, like the paintings that see, actually a dog would prefer something that had more sound and smell. They're not visual. <laughs> we have another one. Um, to Andrew's point, you made a point about the very narrow wavelength of light that human beings can see. Um, I thought, is that the, the reason you're raising that? I mean, colour is will change from perspective. So, sunrise and sunset is a different colour because the colour's moving away or toward us. Um, and our very narrow wavelength of colour sort of is uniquely human. So, does the uh, sort of uh, move towards or away from colour sort of 
mean that a particular type of art is trying to be somewhat transcendent of what human beings would see, for example, um, and be something more permanent or more universal beyond human. Ooh. Um. Uh, have you considered alien forms? <laughs> <laughs> is that the point? I think so, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. One, one last one. We're okay. <laughs> Two more. <laughs> this is a question for Andrew. I'm wondering why you think colour being delusional is a bad thing. You kind of made it seem like it was a bad thing. Well, it depends, you know, whether you wake up and you're in a room and you're worse off than you started, then it's, you know, a bad thing. So, but ordinarily artists don't cause that much trouble, but, you know, when we all go to the Himalayas and we don't get lift off, well, and bliss doesn't arrive, you, there are all sorts of gurus we have to be careful of, so, yeah, it can be. But sometimes some delusions are, I don't know, give me an example. You do realise I only have to do this argument because she gave me, well, both of them gave me the negative. So I have to do, I have to do this as well as I can. Sorry? Geometry. Geometry is a delusion. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a bad delusion? I don't know. Maybe it's, I don't know. Yeah. Give it a go. Um, I have two thoughts that might become questions. One is no one's really commented on the connection of uh, whiteness and neutrality or political neutrality. Um, although you have mentioned that white is itself a colour, so it does take a position. Whereas, yeah, it's hard to talk about without existing in the binary. Um, and then my other kind of point or question is, there's this artist whose name I can't remember. Um, she's at the MoMA and she is a minimalist artist. And she made this comment about um, the way that we seem to demand uh, a concept or an explanation from art as opposed to say music where we maybe are more comfortable with like pure emotion and um, I think there's something about visual arts that I find kind of um, yeah tiringly intellectual and uh, your comment about the reparative potential for art interests me but um yeah, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a binary between emotion and intellect, obviously, but... Um, and maybe that's the role of visual art, is to kind of create this space of dialogue, which is, is quite rational, but... Um, okay, and then this is very patchy, but then this... Um, 
Yeah, what's, what is the... Why are people so uncomfortable with... Um, it's like even at art school, everything has to be justified through this kind of, you know, ra rationalisation or intellectualization of things. I mean, it's just a Might be a observation. bit beyond the scope for tonight's discussion, but maybe you could speak to the reparative. Susan, that's your, that's your area. you're describing is gendered and obviously that there's no reason why you can't have emotion and concepts together. That's Most of my work has been about that, that the emotions are no more dangerous than colour. So in terms of all of those different words that have been lined up negatively and they're usually lined up with femininity, um, colour, emotion, um, body, all those, sensuality, all those things that have been feminized can easily be put into some kind of dynamic relationship with the so-called masculine ones. And women artists usually do it rather than um, seeing a problem of those two things intertwining. So um, if that kind of addresses it, I mean, they don't have to be polarized would be my argument, but most of art history has polarized them. That would be the history rather than the actuality. Hmm. Okay, last comment, make it quick. <laughs> Sorry, I'm hogging the mic, but uh, yeah, uh, binarism is interesting because uh, we're talking about color and we're talking about uh, essentially uh, uh, the in-between of lightness and darkness. And, uh, and that's kind of very, uh, it's, it's the ultimate binary, really. Uh, and that color exists is, is representing everything that comes between light and dark. And that's all I really wanted to say. <laughs> okay, so on that note, <laughs> thank you, Susan Best, Andrew McNamara, for this illuminating the lightning colorful debate. Please join me in thanking them for tonight. I have the challenging task of deciding who gets this bottle of sparkling wine. There's been some really interesting points made by both of you and, and things came up that I hadn't, sorry, what's that? I decide. It's, it's completely rigged. <laughs> yes. It's not a democracy. This is no democracy. Some things I hadn't considered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, some things I hadn't considered. Danger, the danger of color and and the absence of color was something that came up and I was, um, I was really quite fearful about both positions. Might we bump into a work of art if it's without color and, and might we have a psychotic episode if we are waking up to such color? It, there's, that's something I hadn't thought about. Um, animals and certainly aliens I hadn't thought about on this topic. Um, but I think... I think tonight, given the, uh, you know, if we do bring this to a, a somewhat democratic process, 
I think that um, I think there was a lot of uh, audience response to Andrew's discussion, which you may think is a good thing, but in fact it's not, because that was a rebuttal. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there was a lot of holes in the argument there. There was a, you know, some some disconnect perhaps, and there was there was a lot of elements. There was a lot going on, and I think it, though uh, Susan Best's argument was it was an unexpected tactic to start from the negative to essentially present her rebuttal in advance of her own case. <laughs> I think. Ultimately, it won the day. So, Susan, I would like to award you this bottle of sparkling. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Um, okay. <laughs> And that's it. the sign of a bad loser. <laughs> All right, well, look, please join us out in the foyer. We can continue this debate with a drink. Um, thank you all for coming, and, and please join us again.